Welcome to this episode of the Meta Magic. I'm joined this week by Pro Tour historian Brian David Marshall. This week we go through a lot of questions and a lot of things I've always wanted answered from him, encapsulated in amazingly only an hour and 30 minutes. He is an amazing person with a great story to tell and quite possibly the best top five list I will ever have on this show. Thank you for listening. Since collectible card game developers, Fifth Planet Games has acquired New York-based game design consulting company to be continued. What additional opportunities will this be able to provide you? <clears throat> well, um, you know, it really just provides a stable framework for uh, my group to do what we were already doing, which is um, designing board games, designing online uh, trading card games, <clears throat> So the number of factual inaccuracies in the regular piece, it's it's hard enough to, you know, explain what kinds of different kinds of games are, video games, board games, trading card games, to people even within the industry. And uh, once you get into it, so, you know, they talk about us doing Twilight CCGs and Walking Dead CCGs. That's not actually accurate. My company has been doing uh, game design for past six years or so, uh, you know, worked on some children's brands. We worked on the Twilight board game. We've worked on the Walking Dead board game. We've worked on a couple of other projects and consulting projects for other companies. <clears throat> the big project that we've been working on for the last, you know, more than a year now is a virtual, you know, a social platform trading card game called Clash of the Dragons with a company called Fifth Planet Games in uh, California. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a, you know, collectible card game that's, you know, played on Facebook. It's played on Congregate, which is a an ama- pretty amazing uh, gaming platform uh, for hardcore gamers. Uh, it's done, you know, tremendously well for us. We're about to, you know, we're about to embark on a, a second uh, game with, with Fifth Planet Games. And, you know, they were like, well, you know what, we'd really like to bring you guys into the family, make you part of the company, and, you know, um, you know, working as a as a consultancy is you're chasing after your next uh, gig all the time, and this gives us the stability to really sit down and hunker down and focus on not only the projects at hand, but like on some pet projects that we've been wanting to do for a long time. How difficult is it now with with this job, along with you being a husband, and now with the expanded tour you have to do for magic how do you balance all this i I haven't really done that much more i mean there's there's a lot more grand prix but there's also a lot more grand prix coverage people (laughs) i actually haven't done that many many additional events um you know i I generally only do a handful of grand prix every year uh you know i do every pro tour and every sort of pro tour equivalent. I don't even know what everything, you know, how you sort of break everything down now, world, you know, the world magic cup, the player championship, the pro tours, um, uh, you know, and, you know, I'll do a handful of grand prix, uh, you know, each segment of the year, probably two or three, you know, somewhere between six and 10 grand prix over the course of the year, depending, I don't know, you know, it's just, I mean, it's something that it's, the same as asking someone who, you know, has a full-time job, who is married, who goes to, you know, you know, six or ten Grand Prix in the course of a year to play. Um, you know, for me, the big goal is is sneaking a Grand Prix in that I get to play in this year. 
Um, so I'm, I'd like I'd like to play in like two or three actually. So I'm going to try to get to Vancouver to play limited. I'm going to try to get to wherever the three person team event is. <clears throat> And, uh, you know, I'd probably also like to play in Boston, at Grand Prix Boston, if that's possible. You've had your hand in a lot of things that have shaped magic, from being a founder of one of its first tournament organizers to feature article writing to coverage in the booth and text-based formats and working with numerous people with books, including Mike Flores, and also being a part of Team Monkey Dog on the tour. Is there another project for magic you want to do that you haven't done yet? I mean, I, I, you know, given uh, infinite uh, amounts of, you know, time and money, I would, I would really love nothing more than to own a game store in New York City. Uh, you know, which is not something new, but it's something that doesn't really exist right now in Manhattan. Um, it's not something that is reasonable for me to do. Uh, you know, I've certainly looked at it since Neutral Ground uh, closed uh, multiple times, multiple different ways. You know, it, it's, you know, I really would love there to be this kind of like upscale magic social club. <laughs> but uh, that that's kind of my, you know, I mean, I guess in the way that it'd be different is I would love to see something like that for, you know, us, us, us sort of a more mature magic players to have a place to, to gather and hang out and, you know, something maybe comparable to the bar at Card Kingdom in Seattle, you know, uh, yeah. but, but it's not, you know, uh, you know, bar, barring a, uh, well, we'll see. We'll see if, uh, you know, maybe if, uh, things pay off really well with this whole Fifth Planet, uh, acquisition in the end. <laughs> You know, if if in the Russian doll scheme of things we get absorbed by a much bigger Russian doll, uh, you know, maybe that's what I'll do in my next stage. Uh, and honestly, the thing that I'd like to do more than anything else is just kind of, uh, you know, for me, the thing that I, I see myself doing is like my retirement is actually just owning some sort of food-based business. Like a you know like a like a diner or a uh, a pancake house or something crazy like that you know something where you know that's you know maybe seasonal even oh interesting so yeah I want to talk a little bit about neutral ground okay and there are a lot of stories from there that have yet been told can you tell us a couple of good ones I, mean, I think all the good ones have been told <laughs> honestly. Uh, <laughs> You know, I, it's, it's, it's such a long time ago at this point. Um, I mean, for me, just the, the, the thing that's always amazing about it is, you know, we were, uh, we started running tournaments in the end of 1994 in New York. And by spring of 1995, we had, uh, opened neutral ground. And, uh, you know, we had no idea, you know, what was going to happen or how people would react. You know, there weren't really stores that, that focused, you know, there were, there were stores that sold games or sold comics that made some space for games. But the idea of a tournament center, which is a space where people could play games and then you also sold stuff. Yeah, you, know, you sold singles and you sold supplies and you sold, you know, snacks and beverages and was, was really, Unique uh, that didn't exist before that, and uh, you know, and at the time, you know, we we really treated it um, even more differently. Like it really was like a, almost like a club. I mean, people paid a membership to come to Neutral Ground. Uh, there was a two hundred and fifty dollar annual membership. I think it was a thirty five or thirty five dollar monthly membership. 
or $7 daily entry, uh, which would then include, you know, a, a, you know, that $7 would, would qualify you to play in all the free tournaments that were there, and you'd get some sort of discount towards your sealed deck tournament, mm. if there was a sealed deck tournament. Would that, could that concept work today? Maybe. <laughs> I honestly don't know. It's, 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 I, I gotta tell you, it's, I, I have so much, um, you know, respect for the people who are out there, you know, supporting the magic community through the WPN and, you know, as local game stores and local comic stores. Like, yeah, you know, it's, <clears throat> it is such hard work. And, you know, certainly to do it well, <clears throat> you know, and it's not something you're ever going to get rich doing. You know what I mean? It's it's really like a, a labor of love, and it's it's hard to find that balance of, you know, when when there's not really. I mean, obviously, you know, millionaire, uh, you know, Playboy Pete Huffling has gotten rich doing it, but I mean, I think that the, I don't I don't think that it's uh, I don't think that it's something you know you can uh, you know that there's a lot of room for a lot of millionaires. <laughs> he's the exception <laughs> you know? more than the rule. Well, sure. I mean, he's you know he's really consolidated. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, that's, that's more the internet business than I don't think the store is, you know, the physical store is where he's making his money, you know. You wrote an article back in 2003 about your drive to play constructed in major events. And you just talked a little earlier about the fact that you are going to try to play in two or three GPs this year. Yeah, I'd like to. Do you miss comp- playing competitively in major events? You know, it's yes and no. I, I certainly, you know, uh, enjoy playing at the highest level. I'm a very competitive person, uh, you know, and I, I certainly have that same drive to, you know, see how well I can do that every single player who goes to FNM and PTQs and, you know, <clears throat> you know, experiences. Uh, but, I mean, I, I also, you know, it's the same thing as with the store. I've done it before. You know, I, I know what a, I know what a grind it is, and you know, there's there's not. Uh, uh, I don't miss. I you know, I want that opportunity to play, see how well I do, but I'm not. Uh, I don't have that drive to be like, you know, driving around every weekend to a PTQ and trying to get out to the Pro Tour, and you know that those 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 days are are behind me. I mean, I've. I've been married for longer than, or about as long as Magic has been out. So, you know, when I was going to my first PTQs in, you know, 96, you know, that was already like, hey, honey, I need a weekend. You know, I've never had that that kind of, uh, you know, thing where it's like, hey, you know, I can just go on the road for four weeks and and go to PTQs. You know what I mean? I And and certainly would not not trade what I have for that. Um, But... You know, I mean, I, I, I just, I like, uh, you know, I feel like I have a certain skill level at limited and certainly for some limited GP, some limited GPs, I would like to, you know, see if I can, um, do well at an individual limited Grand Prix. Um, the last one I got a chance to play in was Grand Prix New Jersey and I feel like I, uh, you know, frankly crapped the bed on day two. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, I'd like to, I'd like it, you know, another chance to, to do that. Uh, and, and team, team events are, you know, really dear to me. It's where I've had the most fun playing, you know, magic at the highest levels as, as a member of a team, whether it was with Eric Kesselman and Brooke North as team monkey dog, 
or, you know, with some permutation of Steve Saden, Mike Flores, Paul Jordan, and Tim McKenna, <laughs> um, you know, as, as my later teams sort of re- revolved around. Uh, you know, that's just always such a great a great feeling to, to play alongside your, your friends. I wanted to talk a little bit about Team Monkey Dog. Uh, you referred to him in that article about that was your only Pro Tour event that you had cashed in with uh, Kesselman and North. Talk about the yeah. two of them and why did Team Monkey Dog happen? Uh, you know, it's kind of that's kind of funny. Uh, so... Uh, Magic Dojo, which was a big part of uh, Magic culture in the early part of its, uh, you know, tournament scene, you know, throughout the Pro Tour, and you know, was was this, you know, got bought up by a company uh, called Asylum, and uh, was, you know, they made an attempt to be, you know, part of that first big internet boom, right? They got bought by the Sci-Fi Network, and you know, Mike Flores was working there, and Adrian Sullivan was working there, and Brooke North was working there, and they, uh, you know, they were doing a big promotion, and they were going to, you know, fly people to cons to compete at a Team Grand Prix, and and then uh, Sci-Fi Network pulled the plug on the dojo, and uh, you know they were they were going under, and uh, Brooke North, Eric Hesselman, and I happened to win the three tickets <laughs> to go to France. Nice. <laughs> Uh, which left me 36 hours to get my passport because I had never left the country to that point in my life. Uh, and, and it, it was, uh, it was, I don't want to say it was shady, but it was, <laughs> you know, certainly, you know, there, there are, there are expedition, uh, passport expediters in New York that have clearly, in the old days, before uh, before 2001, had greased some palms at the passport office so that you could get an appointment more quickly than you would otherwise. Certainly, outside of New York, that might not be a big deal. But in New York, I remember, you know, I was like, oh, crap, i got to get my passport. And uh, calling up uh, the passport office, and it's like, oh, you know, if you'd like to get an appointment, uh, you know, before this date, press one. You know, press one. Like, okay. So, you know, what day would you like an appointment? You print to that. They're like, okay, if you'd like an appointment before 3 p.m., press 1. Press 1. There are no appointments before 3 p.m. Oh, okay. If you'd like an appointment after 3 p.m., press 2. Press 2. There are no appointments after 3 p.m. Uh, you know, if you'd like to see, investigate other options, you know, press 3. Press 3, and then they just hang up on you. <laughs> right? <clears throat> so eventually someone at a post office kind of, gave me the number for some company that expedited to pay, you know, so it's basically you pay some, you know, uh, ursurous amount of money and someone gets you into the passport office and you get a legitimate passport, but it was, it was, it was definitely, you know, hu- hurried up and, you know, we flew to, we flew to con and had no idea where we were even staying. We literally got off the plane, went to the tournament site and wandered around until we found a hotel. Um, you know, found a hotel, and, uh, you know, played in the, I think it was, uh, what set was Predator Flagship in? Oh, you're going to ask me that question. I'm not going to remember off the top of my head. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember. And I, but that, whatever limited format had Predator Flagship, because I had a Predator Flagship. I guess that was Masks. I guess that was Mercadian Masks. Some Mercadian Masks Limited. 
because uh, I had I had Predator flagship in my uh, and Coastal Piracy in my seal deck on day one, and uh, I remember that uh, we uh, you know we did pretty well on day one. We made it through to you know, we made it through to day two, and in fact we were we were in contention for top four going into the last round. And uh, the tiebreakers just worked out in such a way that, you know, you know, if we won, we were either like fourth or fifth, but like more likely fifth. And Billy Jensen, Dave Williams, and Dan O'Mahony Schwartz, who we were paired up against, were either third or fourth. They were guaranteed in, and we were, you know, I think a very slim chance of getting in. And, uh, you know, we knew that uh, based on our you know, at that time, based on our rating, we were going to qualify based on rating, and so we 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 actually scooped to to Billy Jensen's team to make sure that they got into the top four. Wow. Olsep talked about it on a video interview he did, and many of the Magic players of the past have talked about the willingness to scoop to an opponent in order to advance them when they need it, like for. Uh, a point for a certain level, or if they're going to make top eight, the willingness to sacrifice yourself. Well, this was, this was just a matter of, I mean, we were we spent a lot of time with them that weekend. Uh, to be honest, everything I know about Team Rochester, which was the draft format on day two, I learned. I, I mean, I, I got to say, if I had to pick a format where I had to play for my life, like if I had to pick one magic format, I would pick Team Rochester. You know, it's like I, I feel more confident in that format than any other format. Uh, the only reason I have that level of confidence is because we played all that weekend against uh, Billy Jensen. Uh, he was just William Jensen. He was just the most formidable Team Rochester drafter of all time. Everything I, I learned about the format, I learned just losing to him all weekend. So, uh, you know, I mean, so, you know, when I also, when I say we scooped, I mean, Pretty sure we were going to get crushed. <laughs> I mean, the guy was unbelievable uh, at the, at the format, but it was he was they were guaranteed to be in with the win, and we were you know um, you know we were a, a, a long shot you know the way the tiebreakers work out. So it was just it just was sort of a seemed to me a very, very reasonable decision, and and again the way it worked with ratings invites for, at that point. Um. You know, we knew we were going to get in. We knew we were going to get a ratings invite to play on the Pro Tour. So, and which which we did. Now, let's compare that to today's Magic, where unlike you just talked about, where the smaller teams littered the landscape, you're seeing these super teams work together. Uh, there were super teams back then also. I mean, that's that. in fact, there were more super teams back then. This is Team Rochester. This is... You know, this teams don't even factor into that format. You know, this was this is literally just like, hey, who do you want to play with? You know, uh, I mean, at the time there was there was you know certainly CMU, and uh, you know there's certainly you know Team Godzilla, and there was you know YMG, and there were you know various Z and Alan Comer. You know, there, there were there were always there were always big teams. There was the the Cologne Conjurers Club, <laughs> Kai Buddha's, uh German team. 
but now there's like maybe three at the most nowadays. Sure. Does the lack of players, I'll use a perfect example of a grinder on the circuit, Christian Calcano. Uh, he doesn't work for a big team, does a lot of his work on his own or on site before the event. Does the fact that players, grinders like him, that go to every event, does it help or hurt them because they're not part of Team Fireball or working with, you know, John's group? That includes that thing. How much does that hurt them? I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that because, you know, I think I know Christian very well. I mean, I, I you know, he's someone who grew up at neutral round. I mean, I watched him, you know, grow up from, you know, playing other card games to, you know, kind of, and being very, very good at them. And, you know, knowing he was going to be very good at magic, you know, watching him sort of go, oh, all these people are that I, you know, know, you know, versus was a game that a lot of people sort of, um, versus system was a lot of people who played magic dipped their toes into because it was, you know, reasonably easy to win money, uh, playing that game and playing on their, their, their pro circuit. Um, so, you know, he, he met a lot of magic players while he was playing versus and, you know, I was like, Oh, I, I could probably play this game too. And, you know, so I, I watched him, you know, sort of make that ascent. But, you know, I mean, I think there's a lot of other factors for, for Chris besides, you know, a, a team. I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. I think that if a player, uh, Chris Chris tilts himself a lot to be yes. to be honest, and uh, I think his, you know, I th- I think that players need to go through some point where they make this, I don't know, uh, resolve, you know, to to I mean it's not just enough to just go to all the events. I mean I think I think you need to make, you know, put some systems into place that let you win. Uh, you know, if you, you know, uh, saw the interview with Reed Duke from Grand Prix Nashville, you know, Reed, Reed is certainly someone who's an exceptional Magic player. Uh, has proven, has won everything there is to win on Magic Online, right? You know, he's, you know, qualified for the mocks. He's been the Magic Online, you know, championship winner. And he's won, he's gotten himself to the Pro Tour via, via PTQs on Magic Online. Never won a uh, an offline tournament up until last weekend, right? She's never done it, uh, and you know found that he was, you know, really just not. He's like, you know, I'm just not as good at limited as I am online. You know what what's going on? And he realized that um, he was just kind of lazy about it because he's so used to playing on Magic Online and where the bulk of his draft, draft experience came from, that he relied on having that open information about what, what cards he picked throughout the draft. Mm. Right? Yeah. And so, so he just never developed that skill of doing an offline draft where you're not allowed to review your picks. When you, when you play in the top eight of a PTQ or you play in the top eight of, you know, in a Grand Prix draft or at a Pro Tour draft, you know, while you're picking cards in that first pack, you put the card, you pick the card, you put it down in front of you. You can't look at those cards until all the cards from pack one have been picked. Then you get a review period. But, you know, if you're not accustomed to that style of drafting, it can be pretty, you're like, oh, do I need a four drop? Do I need a two drop? You know, which, which card do I want to take here? And you're like, I don't know what my curve is. I don't know what cards I've picked. You know, and he found he was not, you know, 
exercising that muscle. So he made, set his Magic Online uh, drafts up so that he couldn't see his picks anymore. And only looked at his picks in between uh, packs. Mm-hmm. You know, and as a result, you know, it was like, you know, has this much, you know, felt like he had this much greater memory. I'm just saying, like, you know, and then as a result, you know, Reed has been, you know, as a result of his success and as a result of the, the sort of process he puts himself through and, you know, how well he's done. You know, Reed is, is heavily courted and people want him on their team and they want to play test with him, right? I'm just saying, I think, I think, you know, that if you are, there, there's a lot of good young players, you know, the Matt Costas, the Reed Dukes, the Chris Calcanos, uh, you know, uh, you know, Ben Friedman is, is in that group and, you know, uh, Dave Shields. And like if those guys wanted to form, a, you know, someone had the, you know, uh, leadership to form a team around those guys, right? That's a team that could do really well. And, and, you know, really the thing, the thing that's missing in terms of people forming teams is that leadership component, right? Like that's a, things have always sort of like formed around a nucleus and someone just needs to be that nucleus. If you look at Team Fireball, I mean, if anyone defines the pinnacle of leadership, it's Luis. Right. And what happens if Luis quits magic? Right. Aside from, aside from the world, I mean, for that team though. Yeah. Right. So is, 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 is there someone there who, I'm not, I, 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 you know, is, is Conley going to be the guy that everyone coalesces around? Is it going to be David Ochoa? You know, and, and not taking anything away from any of those guys. The, the, you know, they just don't have that sort of, you know, someone has to be the cat herder. Yeah, Luis is a unique person when it comes to that because of his combination of organizational skills and just to when it comes right down to it, when you hear him talk from his reports about what he has to do to keep these guys in order. Right. You know, it, it takes a very strong person to do that. Sure. But let's talk a little bit about you are considered the magic historian. Well, I actually, I mean, I'm, I'm actually paid to be the magic historian. That's not even considered. That's I'm the pro tour historian, actually, not a magic historian. A pro tour historian. Who in magic's pro tour history have people forgot about that made a huge impact on the game? Ah, uh, you know, I mean, certainly. Uh, you know, early days of magic, you know, the, there there are people who, Henry Stern is somebody who, you know, had multiple uh, Pro Tour Top 8s, uh, took a very early job at Wizards of the Coast in R&D, and sort of stayed there for quite a long time before moving on to work at Zenga uh, now, who, you know, was certainly a, you know, a very... Uh, powerful player who has kind of gotten, you know, I think is 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 not given the same due that, you know, pl- for whatever reason that Mark Justice and oh, excuse me and some other early Pro Tour successful players have gotten. Uh, I think Brian Hacker is clearly somebody who you know really defined how we play limited today. And if you ever get Mike Flores talking about the subject, he'll, you know, just rave about a Brian Hacker who, you know, created the modern tournament report, who, you know, um, you know, really, really like kind of was one of the first guys to, def- you know, really show that, you know, drafting was a 
a skill and that there were decks that you could force and, you know, styles of decks that you could build and, you know, really introduce the idea of, you know, people were playing when they, when they first started drafting, really played it almost the same way they played sealed deck, right? You know, it was kind of, kind of like ambitious mana bases and kind of like clog the ground, get through with a couple flyers or kill you with my millstone eventually or whatever, right? It was like these, these kind of like, you know, grindy, inevitable decks. And, you know, he really, you know, showed people that, you know, there were these, you know, look, you know what, you can just get these really efficient decks with two power creatures for two mana and removal spells and bounce and, you know, and so, so I mean, I think he's someone who, who doesn't quite get his due. Um, and Chris Bakula is someone, it's, it's my, really, I, I, to my eternal regret that he's, you know, that I, I didn't vote for him year one of the, of the Pro Tour Hall of Fame. Uh, and, you know, that, you know, very well could have been a difference. Uh, this is someone who was just a crusader for playing the game correctly, right? And for enforcing some sense of fair play and for holding cheaters accountable. And, um, you know, has, has just really, you know, uh, a handful of guys in New York who, you know, uh, you know, it's funny. I was talking to Chris about this. Day, he, I don't even think he remembered it. It was like, you know, the reason that we register sealed decks uh, is, you know, we used to run sealed deck tournaments pretty regularly at neutral ground and at gray matter conventions. And, you know, Chris was just like, look, I am worried about people cheating. What are you going to do? How are you going to stop people from cheating? And we, you know, created these Excel spreadsheets with all the card names in them in the card pools. And, you know, we started doing deck swaps and we did, you know, all, all the stuff that, you know, we we actually, you know, invented that method of, uh, you know, safeguarding your, your steel deck process, you know, at, at the urging of someone like Chris Pacola and Dave Price. And, and Dave Price is another person who, you know, I think is, you know, he, he had one Pro Tour win. You know, it was his only real big Pro Tour success. But, boy, it was this guy... He was such an inspiration to everybody who wanted to be on the Pro Tour. He was the first kind of, like, fingernail-scraping, white-knuckle Pro Tour grinder. You know what I mean? Like, he would just get there a different way every time. You know, I remember being at Pro Tour Houston, and he bombed out at Pro Tour Houston, which he had just gotten, you know, managed to get there to qualify for, and... He's drafting in the top eight of the PTQ for the next Pro Tour. And, um, you know, we're, we're sitting in the lobby of the hotel. I'm like, man, I really hope Dave wins, you know. And we're sitting in the lobby of the hotel, and someone comes in, and they're like, yeah, Dave Price won. He won the PTQ. And Josh Bennett and I, who one of the other coverage reporters, were just like, you know, in this, like, yes, hugged each other. We were so happy. I remember, and I remember uh, – and Nikolai Herzog was there, and he was like, who, who are these guys? Why are they hugging each other? You know, and it was like such an emotion. I was like, yes, Dave Price got to another pro tour. It was just such a, I don't know, just such a, a great story and such a great feeling. So he, and he's someone who I, I, don't, I don't think a lot of people today know, and, and, uh, and, that's, and that's really a shame. 
that's one of the reasons why I try to ask these questions because there's so much of magic's history that people just never heard about. The, like you said, the Dave Price who grinded it out. If you want to find a, a great tournament report, look for it was a two part. It was a tournament report he did about a, two, a, a double qualifier weekend. Uh, I don't remember which Pro Tour it was for now, but and the the Pro Tour report is called House of Horrors. And reading it at the time, it was just like uh, nail biting, right? You're like, oh my god, is Dave going to win? Is he going to get to the Pro Tour? And you know, it, it's just one of my favorite. Uh, you know, if you really want just a great piece about like the grind and the desire to get back there and the, you know, just the summoning of will that you need after you get beaten down to sort of come back for another qualifier, you know, you know, you just, you know, you get beat down in some 200 person qualifier and you're like, Oh, this is so hopeless. This, you know, there's 199 other people who are just like me. How, how am I going to qualify? You know, that, that sort of just futility that you feel when things don't go right. And then just like putting that aside and, and, and slogging into another one and, and getting there. And uh, I, I, I love that about magic. Right. I love the, the you know, for all of the, the negative um, energy that can be around magic sometimes. Oh, they ruined magic or, you know, this is stupid. And, you know, well, you know, the, the, the eternal optimism, <laughs> you know, like, I, I love, you know, I love every Monday that Chris Calcano posts something on Facebook. He's like, all right, Mexico, everyone else is fighting for second place. I'm going to win this one. Right. <laughs> You know, every week there's there's another like message from Calcano that's just like, yep, I got it this week, guys. You know, and I love that. I love that optimism in the face of, you know, you know, overwhelming futility, right? It's like baseball. You you know, you strike out, you know, you you make out seventy percent of the time, and you're a millionaire. <laughs> he's one of the people that when I first started doing this, every time I go to a site, he's like. Do you want to sit down and just talk for a bit? And not even with the recorder, just to talk about how his game's going, you know, what he's thinking about and things like that. And I think someone who has that much passion for the game and is willing to put everything in his life behind to do something like this is special. And you hope for the best for him. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've I've featured Chris in my column a couple times. And, you know, I... But I, I see. I think the thing is, I really want to see Chris go out. Just going back to what you're talking about teams before, is make his own luck. You know what I mean? Go out there. It's like, okay, you're not part of a team. Well, find that team, make it. You know, organize it. You know, do for other people what you want someone to do for you. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, if 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 you look around and no one's starting that team and no one's, you know, putting that together and organizing it and doing, think, come on, Calcano. Do it. Get off the pine. <laughs> it's the fact that uh, Magic Online maybe kind of negated the thought of people needing teams because, oh, I can just grind it out online and practice all I want on here. Why do I need to talk to other people? To some extent, but, I mean, I think you certainly see that if you can identify, but it should also, Magic Online then should also help you identify the people who you want to work with, right? So if you look at Magic Online over the last couple of years, you can find Brad Nelson, and you can find Reed Duke, and you can find Bing Luke, and you can find, 
you know, Michael Hetrick. And, you know what I mean? Like, you can identify these good up-and-coming players. You can identify Dave Shields. You can identify Dave Howard. You know, you can identify Jerry Thompson and, you know, so on and so on and so on, right? And you can find these guys, and you can sort of say, hey, let's – Let's put our, our, our powers to, to good use for this next pro tour that we're qualified for because we're all of that same, you know, or let's get each other qualified and, you know, let's work together, right? You know, there's, you know, Magic Online's great. It's great for identifying stuff and you can get yourself a good deck and you can be, uh, you know, you can be prepared. But I think we've seen just in the Channel Fireball era that, it's not just enough to have a good deck. I mean, everyone, right? Like the reason that tempered steel was so good is because everyone had a good deck, right? And they're like, oh, well, everyone's got a good deck. So we're just going to have a deck that's a turn faster than the good decks, right? And, you know, and, 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 like finding, or, or, and then occasionally you just break it in half, right? Occasionally you're like, oh, sort of, sort of uh, feast and famine is really good. No, why is no one talking about this card? You know, and you, you know, you have a good team, good players and, you know, everyone, you know, lifts up and you get like 19 guys in the top 16. And I, I think that, I think that, you know, there are some pretty significant rewards if someone goes out and puts that work in and, you know, Paul coalesces some up and coming people around them to be a successful, you don't have to be a super team, right? Like you can be a pretty good team right now and, you know, the next step is to become that super team, right? But, like, I, you know, I, and you see it. Like, you see, like, Oren Beasley and Pat Cox working together and, you know, uh, building stuff. And yeah, I, I'd like to see more people just follow that model. There's, there's, there's a formula for success that you can iterate on. Speaking of changes that have happened, the whole expanded coverage, when did you find out that Wizards was going to say, look, we're going to expand our coverage on GP. I think that that's, I, I think that as far back as people have been doing, you know, Wizards has been doing top eights. People have wanted to see Swiss rounds. I think that's always been a goal of, uh, you know, the, the people who bring the Pro Tour into your living room is to bring as much of it as possible. And there's, you know, it's very difficult to do, uh, you know, it's, you know, especially when you're dealing with, um, well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of factors that are not very visible to, to people at home who are just like, we want to drink from the fire hose. You know, it's like, well, the union has some pretty strict laws about who turns on the fire hose and who maintains the fire hose and who's going to watch over the fire hose being sprayed into people's mouths. You know, um, <laughs> it's, it's, but, uh, I mean, we, we've been, I, I, I certainly was, a, and a number of other people along with me have been beating that drum since, you know, Rome. You know, we had, you know, we had a meeting in Pro Tour Worlds in Rome, and we're like, we need to be doing this. This is this is where it's going. And you know, the wheels move a little slowly on things like that, and we we got there. Uh, and it's just going to get bigger and better, I think, from here. I think, uh, you know, Bo- uh, Pro Tour Dark Ascension was certainly a proof of concept for a lot of people that. Uh, you know, there was an appetite for the fire hose. Absolutely. Now, can you describe to people 
what a day is like for you in and out of the booth for this expanded coverage. Uh, you know, it's get to the pro, let's you know get to the pro tour. You know, let's say maybe the Tuesday or Wednesday before the event. Um, catch up with friends, talk to people, maybe do a day of sightseeing. Show up Thursday of the, you know, before the pro tour, go to, you know, have a big meeting, uh, with everybody on the coverage team, uh, have another big meeting with everybody on the pro tour team, you know, just talk about the weekend, find out where the fire exits are, <laughs> you know, um, what are we doing? Who's responsible for what? Brainstorm story ideas. Um, you know, uh, who, what players are we keeping an eye out for? Anyone here? Anything cool decks? What are people buying at the deal tables? You know, da, 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 da. Uh, and then on third, then Rich and I generally, um, work with, uh, the more John Mortensen and, and Deb, Deborah Slater, who, who do the video, the bulk of the, the camera work and, and audio work at these events, and we shoot a couple of preview pieces on Thursday night. And Friday morning, show up, again, get there a little before the event, wander around, talk to people, sort of network, find out, look at people's decks, talk to the judges, talk to the event staff, see if there's any stories that, that are, are, are especially exciting catch up on gossip that probably won't make it onto air, but you know, it's always kind of fun to hear. Uh, and then, uh, you know, and then it's like, you know, into the booth, start talking. Uh, and then, you know, and then people, and then, so for example, in at Pro Tour Dark Ascension, things are going to change a little for Pro Tour Barcelona. You know, we'll, we'll fill some surprises in store there, but for Dark Ascension, Rich and I opened the event. We did the first round. And then I went off and did some tape segments, right? And I spend the day, you know, getting getting people to show me their decks, talk about decks, and shoot deck decks, and do, you know, some other taped video content before coming back into the booth down the stretch and switching people in and out based on, uh, you know, giving everyone a chance to eat, you know, dispose of stuff they've eaten, and, uh, you know, just, like, gather their senses <laughs> you know because it's a it's a it's a pretty much in the booth it's there's a lot of input right there's there's multiple cameras there's three different people talking in your ear there's a director there's a spotter you can hear the person in the booth who's right next to you talking in your ear through the headset um you know there's like 10 different camera angles that you can choose from to look at you know it's there's it's it's a it's a sensory overload it can be pretty dizzying by the end of the day why does the chemistry work so well with you and Rich? Uh, you know, we've been doing this for a while. I don't, I don't know. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I think, I think Rich and I are, are very different people. We have, uh, we, we both have very similar goals about, you know, being entertaining, being informative, uh, a passion for magic. But I think we come at it from completely different directions and experiences. And I think that, uh, you know, that that results in some some entertaining friction sometimes that we certainly play to very much. You know, we both 
I think we both, uh, you know, we, we've worked together enough that we, we kind of, you know, we kind of know where each other's comfort zones are and how to push the other person just a little bit out of it. So that it's entertaining and genuine and, you know, it, it, it doesn't seem too rehearsed. It's also interesting because when the two of you are in the booth, you normally in a any kind of booth situation, there's the lead and then the color person. And a lot of times, you guys kind of overlap and switch positions based on what's happening in the match. Sure. And that's a very difficult technique to not sound like you're stumbling over each other. Do you guys manage to do that? Yeah, we just, uh, I, I, you know, Rich is a consummate showman. His background is entertainment. He's, you know, done, you know, he creates music. He's done stage plays. He's done, you know, he's performed on cruise ships. You know, that was, you know, the bulk of his life before what he does now. And you know what? He just has, he has impeccable timing. And he's really great at picking up on cues. And, uh, you know, he kind of, he makes that element of it very easy. You know, he has, he has an excellent sense of staging and, uh, and timing and, and, and verbal and nonverbal cues. Well, speaking of another person who has made an impact on this, Rashad Miller and yourself have worked together at events before Gigi's Live and the Wizards is a close relationship to happen. Can you explain Rashad's impact on what we get in Magic because of him taking a chance and making Gigi's life happen? I mean, I, you know, I, again, who would know they wanted a drink from the fire hose if somebody didn't open the fire hose, <laughs> right? Like, you know, uh, Rashad really, like, uh, just, I, I mean, he is the ultimate proof of concept that people want, you know, constant coverage. You know, and, uh, I mean, again, I talked about, uh, you know, where we had a meeting after Worlds in Rome to talk about, you know, expanded coverage for the Pro Tour. And that was because I had watched Rashad doing GG's Live from, like, some random PTQ in the middle of, like, a frozen wasteland in the middle of uh, America. You know, like some just, like, you know, some tundra. I think there were seven people at the PTQ, and they cut to a top five. And, you know, it was like some small <laughs> event. And, uh, and I was just like, this is insane, right? This is, this is game changing. And, uh, you know, and, and it has been, right? I mean, he, he really, uh, you know, was way out ahead of even like the people who are doing streaming. And, you know, I think he's really opened the door for just like people to just consume magic content and really dive into, you know, the decisions players make and the, the personalities and the byplay and, you know, it's it's it is uh it is as significant as you know Wizards of the Coast deciding to webcast top eights in the first place. Mm-hmm. Well, my next two questions are about two people that have been added to the team. Uh, the first one is about Sheldon. Now, being the level five judge that he was, uh, he's been a great addition to the team. How has the transition been for him so far, in your opinion? Uh, I mean, seems seems great so far. I mean, Sheldon. Sheldon I mean, 
I, uh, Sheldon, someone I consider a, a dear friend. I, you know, like anytime you get to sit down in the booth with someone who you're friends with and just talk about magic, that's pretty effortless. Um, I mean, I think, I think anytime anyone steps in front of the camera for the first time, it's, there's, there's some bumps and certainly I think Sheldon's had that experience, but I think far fewer than a lot of people I've seen, uh, have. And I, I, I you know, I, you know, I don't, I'm not really sure how to answer that, but you know, I think he's, I think he's done, I think he's done a great job. And I think he, uh, you know, and I think it's a lot more fun than judging. <laughs> he talked about that with me at, uh, Grand Prix Indy. He said, the hours you put in are not the same. He said, they're different hours. There's different stresses. He says, but this is as much fun or more fun than he ever had had judging. Yeah. And that just shows you how powerful the actual on-live format is for people to draw them into it. But we will talk about the next person that's... Uh, jumped in the booth with you that has had a little bit of success, and that's uh, one Marshall Sutcliffe. Do you enjoy being a mentor in the booth for people like him that are breaking ground into this environment? Uh, so I actually worked with uh, Marshall before that at Grand Prix Austin. Yes. Which was the first event we streamed. We, we did the expanded official GG's Live coverage at. And, uh, you know, I've gotten to know Marshall over the past I say year, uh, you know, I, I actually don't listen to podcasts and very rarely watch any kind of magic videos, but, uh, I was aware of Marshall through, you know, people talking about his podcast and, uh, you know, and he and I became friendly. I was like, you know, he, he answered the call of the draft phone multiple times. Uh, we had a lot of really impassioned talks about, about magic, about limited, about, you know, card valuations. I schooled him in the ways of three color levelers in Rise of Eldrazi, his Rise of Eldrazi draft, his favorite format. And, uh, yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty obvious to me that he's just someone completely at ease talking about magic. And so, uh, you know, I don't know how much mentoring, uh, was, was needed there. <laughs> well, what I'm saying is, is that there are a lot of, uh, verbal cues and things that you can set up for him that as someone who observes it more than just what you're talking about in relation to the game is what's happening in the booth. You may not have consciously been thinking about that, but it came out to someone observing it that you're really doing a good job setting him up, putting him in his exact comfort zone to be able to expand on stuff that he is very strong at. Sure. I, I mean, that's, that's just part of doing coverage, right? Like, you know, I mean, uh, that's, I mean, that's what it is, right? Like, it's not always, uh, and, and in fact, every, you know, people think that coverage is about knowing everything. You know, uh, it's actually about sometimes pretending you don't know stuff, you know, for the sake of exposition, right? You know what I mean? Like, you, you don't want to just be like, well, Obviously, he should have blocked, you know, it's like, it, 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 it doesn't do anyone any good to be very, I don't know, conde condescending. It's not even, it's just like, you want to talk through stuff, you want to work through stuff when you're talking about the game, and, you know, play it out 
in a in a way where you're figuring it out and, and puzzling it out. And, and you know, Marshall got that and, and and picked up on that right away. You've been involved on air with some of the greatest moments in Magic history. The latest one that comes to my mind is Pro Tour Philly with Sam Black and Josh Butterlayton. When you get those moments in broadcasting, what is your mindset, and how do you not overstate the moment? I mean, my my yeah, you, your fear is certainly overstating the moment. I mean, you know, it's uh, I don't even know if that was the the, the I, to me the Connolly match against Craig Wesco was you know even more climactic than than the Sam Black match. Um, you know, the, I mean the the. The Sam Black match is almost a little anticlimactic, right? It's like, is he gonna find it? Is he gonna find the card? Is it there? He searches, he finds another search card, he searches again, and, oh, he's dead. You know? <laughs> right? It's kinda like a wheat wah, you know? Uh, whereas, uh, the, the Conley Woods one is really like, you know, okay people, how many people there think Conley can find a way out and win this game? This must win game. It seem, he seems dead, right? And everyone's like, yep, he seems dead. He's like, how can he find a way out of this? And then watching him find his way out of that, that to me was one of the great moments that I've had a chance to watch uh, from the booth. Can you describe a match that you saw that we didn't see on TV or in coverage that was memorable to you? Oh, my gosh. Uh, Paul Rietzel and Patrick Chapin in the quarterfinals of Magic Weekend Paris where, uh, you know, Paul is, you know, completely frazzled, playing in the Grand Prix and playing in the top eight at the same time, and has this terrible matchup against Patrick, who's playing Tesserator with multiple board sweepers against, you know, Paul Rietzel. He's always playing a Boros deck. Paul just, you know just plays the only way he can play to win, sees a sort of semi-bluff from Patrick, where Patrick taps his mana, like, as if to pretend he's going to do something. And, like, you know, maybe he was going to do something, but, like, Paul just soul-read him on the spot. He's like, nope, he doesn't have it, and just went all in. And it was, uh, you know, you can read the details of the match and the coverage, but it was... It was amazing to watch. It was just like the crispness of his decisions and the confidence that he had in his read was just amazing, right? He just, you know, there were no half measures in that match. He was just like, this is the only way out. I've got to jump through those spinning fan blades, you know? <laughs> it's like, well, you're just going to get chopped to pieces. Like, yeah, it's the only way out. <laughs> right, you know, there's yeah. there's a, a pit of acid to the left. There's you know uh, uh, an armed militia to the right, and there are you know zombies marching up from behind. I have to jump through the spinning fan blade, you know, and and he and he did it right, and he timed it perfectly, and he and he made it. It was phenomenal. It was phenomenal. It was really. I really wish that that match had been on camera. Now, when you get to see those moments, as a player as someone who cares about the game like you do are those just those feel-good moments of magic of like this is what the game is all about oh yeah yeah i mean i mean the, the, anytime you see something where you know people are 
you know, two players have, you know, uh, in the middle of a game, they've both developed their boards and they've both, you know, played out their cards. And then they, they, they actually start to, you know, use their, their personalities and the force of their, of their, uh, reputation and their, you know, the, their body language to, to sort of add this extra layer to the game is always just fascinating to me because, you know, so much of the game gets reduced down to X's and O's. And you realize that there's just this, there really is this much deeper game that happens. You know, not always, right? It's, I mean, it's always, there's always a, it's always a skill game, but there's, there's this like sort of like really, uh, elegant, uh, I, I remember, Years, years and years ago, Steve O'Mahony Schwartz and Nate Clark, uh, made a, made a bet. They were gonna play a sealed deck. People didn't boost a draft back in the day, right? People actually played sealed deck competitively. You know, if you wanted to play against someone, you'd be like, alright, let's build a seal. Let's each build a sealed deck and we'll play. People legitimately did this. <laughs> uh, this was at Pro Tour Dallas and Steve O'Mahony Schwartz and Nate Clark made a bet. And I don't remember what Steve was risking, but if Nate lost, he had to stop posting on the internet for some period of time, which was a big deal because Nate was, Nate was one of the original trolls. Right? He was, he was one of the original, like, you know, internet trolls of, of the, of the game. You know, uh, sort of like some combination somewhere between Tom Martell and Owen Turtenwald. Uh, you know, excellent player. Uh, and, and so he and Steve played Seal Deck and a bunch of people gathered around to watch. And for me, it was so eye-opening because they just, you know, played the game differently. They acknowledged, you know, the possibility of cards in the person's hand and the possibility that the person was representing cards that weren't in their hand. And, you know, all this sort of elegant byplay of, you know, attacking a 2-2 into a 3-3. You know, and really, you know, keeping your mana open when you could be playing something because you're representing a different card and, and sometimes having the card, sometimes not having the card. And, uh, it was, it was such an eye-opening experience for me that, you know, and, and anytime I get to see that kind of, um, it's amazing to me. You know, it's, you know, I, you know, there's how many times does someone not get, you know, two points of damage in? Because they, you know, their, their opponent is gonna block with their 3-3. You know, and, and versus how many times you, you know, you can actually just get away with it, right? Like attack. You know, you know, I attack my, you know, I attack my Avison priest into your walking corpse, right? On turn two, on turn three. Like, are you gonna block? You know, probably not. You have to assume I have something. But right, like when people, when people know in their heart that you can just get that free point of damage. I love that. <laughs> you know, I love, I love when the game sort of just transcends just the cards and just the land on the table, but it actually is what people represent and, 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 you know, knowing what, you know, you can't, you can't make that play against someone who's not a very sophisticated player, right? Someone's going to be like, well, you're attacking your one, two into my two, two, I'll block. <laughs> right. Like, so anyway, I don't know. I don't know if that actually answered your question or if I'm just rambling, but that's what you got. <laughs> well, what you have to understand is, is those again. These are things that people just don't get, 
unless they hear this. But speaking of things that are important, what does a Hall of Fame ballot mean to you? Uh, you know, I, I just, uh, you know, it, it's it's the Pro Tour Hall of Fame. I mean, it's it's the players who, um, I mean, well, I mean, just look at it. I mean, here, here's what it means to me. It means that John Finkel came back, started playing Magic again, won a Pro Tour, is going to Grand Prix this year to chase down Platinum status. Like, that, that's that's what it means, right? It's, it's just this way of, you know, honoring and preserving the history of the game uh, at, a, at a competitive level, but also of bridging the game from those players to the modern players, right? Like, the idea that... You know, LSV and John communicate regularly on Twitter now and, you know, know each other and play each other. And, you know, that that's that's great. You know, the fact that, you know, Kai is going to be at Pro Tour Barcelona, Oof. you know, for Pro Tour Avison Restored is, is phenomenal. You talk about the ability to present the Hall of Fame class every year with Rich. Uh, what is that moment like for you to do that? Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I feel, uh, you know, I feel it's great responsibility, you know, preparing those videos and, and, and preparing those introductions to, you know, really laying out the person's journey in a, in a, in a respectful, uh, way that really represents, shows off, uh, what made that person unique and special and why they're there. And, you know, cause sometimes people get there for very different reasons and, and really, you know, respecting those different, uh, the different reasons people vote for people for the Pro Tour Hall of Fame. I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about top eight games and your relationship with, uh, one Mike Flores, I think his name is. Yeah. <laughs> your podcast with Mike is one of the most unique out there from content to basically sometimes to the variety of locations you record in. You've been with friends with Mike for it seems like forever. Sure. What is it like to work with someone like him? Well, I mean, that's the thing, right? People don't seem to understand this. We don't work together. <laughs> we just get together and we talk about magic the same as we do if there's not a podcaster going on, right? Uh-huh. So it's not really work. If it was work, I mean, I, I don't think I could ever work with Mike. He'd drive me crazy. <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, I mean, it's just, I mean, Mike, Mike is a, a great friend. I've known him, you know, uh, as long as I've known anybody in magic, uh, you know, I started coming to my store for PTQs when he still lived in Ohio, um, you know, in, you know, the, the early nineties, 96, 97, you know, it made an immediate impression on me as Mike does, you know, uh, and we've, we've been great friends ever since. And, you know, uh, you know, we, we just, uh, you know, there, there's, to me, the, the Top 8 Magic podcasts are, uh, I don't know, they're sort of a, a punk rock expression of our love of magic. <laughs> they're, they're, not, they're not supposed to be pretty. <laughs> they're, they're, they're really supposed to be this very just like, we're two people, we're both super busy people, um, you know, uh, you know, very... If, you know, pardon the, this, what seems like a lack of feeling, very successful people. And, you know, we, 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 you know, for, for us, you know, when we get a chance to sit and, and talk about magic, we just want to share our love of the game with other people. And, and we really want to do it in this way that is, 
raw and immediate, or not so immediate sometimes. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Like we're yes. very like very undistilled and very unedited and just unproduced. You know, yes. we we really just want to be like we want that sense of for as much as I think our our sort of uh, DIY approach frustrates people. I think at the same time, it's something that has brought a lot of people, lets a lot of people feel very close to us and very intimate with us. I feel like they're in the room with us, which is certainly the goal of the podcast. If you can bring people closer to the, the listener, it does make the podcast more successful. And from what I've seen, that is 100% true. You wrote a book with Z about My Files Part 1. Will there be a My Files Part 2? You know, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, uh, I think uh, certainly a possibility, I, and and it was it was our intention. It just, uh, I'm not sure. I, I think I think it's I think it's possible. It's a matter of you know uh, you know time and resources. You know, again, those those, those the books are, are more a labor of love than anything else. And I would love to you know uh, do another one. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure when will you know how that'll happen or not. He's such a unique personality. To this day, he still has such a tremendous passion for what things happen in the world of magic. And it was interesting to talk to him about how he just couldn't get it to go to, to Worlds last year. How much, if he could, or if he wanted to, do you think he would make an impact? on the tour if he decided to make a comeback? Well, I mean, if you look at what Zvi did uh, when he started playing on the Pro Tour again, you know, over the last couple of years, is he, he regularly finished top 32. You know, I mean, he was, he was a, a consistent money finisher. Um, he's certainly one of, the, one of the best players in the game, uh, you know, anytime he decides to play. Uh, you know, the, the thing for Zvi is he's, again, it's that same thing. He needs to, he needs to have his passion be at a full boil for the game for him to be successful. And I think, and I think he has, you know, a complicated relationship with the game. Well, you just talked about John earlier and the Finkel draft that's been a part of magic lore. It seems like the hoo-hoos of magic has been a part of these drafts, and the stories of people staying at John's house, what Mike talked about, are endless. Can you tell us a couple of maybe really good stories that you've been a part of with John at these drafts? No. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I, I, I'll tell you one story that, that is at my expense, but in general, there's, you know, I think that there's, there's a kind of like a fight club mentality about the drafts at John's and you know yeah but, but one, of the, one of the stories is uh, again, that I can't tell it's sort of uh, we, we're doing a draft uh, Billy Moreno is going to be the eighth person in the draft and you know we, we I, I, I'm responsible for wrangling Billy right it's really there's there's a lot of responsibility there about getting to make sure you have exactly the right amount of drafters right you know there's a lot of organization that goes into it and we needed a last minute eighth person found Billy tell Billy hurry up get over here you know Billy so we're like okay we sit down draft we're like where the hell is Billy Billy 
mistakenly went to the top eight magic offices instead of coming to John's apartment, misunderstood where the draft was. So they're like, we want to start. So I had to draft my draft and Billy's draft. (laughs) Which resulted in the first 06 in draft history, I believe. (laughs) In one draft. I, 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 you know, threw both drafts just completely in the toilet. Jeez. Now, you have to understand, for someone who loves the history of the game like I do, to hear anything about those is kind of like music to my ears, just because of the little tidbits you hear here and there about them. Uh, it's always been fascinating for me to I, see that. I think they're probably a lot more romantic and uh, romanticized. I want to say romantic. Uh, <laughs> the less you hear about them. <laughs> okay. All right. John also tweeted that in 10 years he attended only three GPs. And he's now attended that many in this year alone. Uh, well, you can tell that he has the same expectations for himself because where most people would think, hey, you know what, I just top 32 or I top 16. It's just like, what is it that, that brought the fire back for him? Well, I mean, I think, uh, I think, I think it's a matter of his professional life is settled enough now that he feels he can reward himself with uh, going to these events. You know, and I, again, I don't want to speak for John, but that's just my assumption. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, honestly, he got close enough to platinum status with his top eight at Pro Tour Dark Ascension that it would just, I mean, J- you know, John is, you know, if nothing, if not value conscious, you know, he knows the, the, the value of getting to platinum. And so, <laughs> you know, he, he kind of uh, owes it to, owed it to himself to get there. What is it like for you when you see people like John come and play and another person who has had some very good success lately, it's Rob Doherty. What is it like for an event like that when you have these quality players come out and play how much of a difference does an event have when they play you know it's funny i i'm always eager to see how they're gonna fare against the young bucks right you know rob doherty comes back i want to see him play against matt costa right you know john finkel comes back i want to see him play against reed duke you know, I want to see him play against Owen. I want to see Luis and Rob Darty square off. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, we had that. That was, the, you know, to a lesser extent, when Brad Nelson made his pro tour debut in Honolulu a couple of years ago, you know, his first round was against Luis Scott Vargas. What a great, you know, I love that. I love that sort of sense of, you know, watching the, the new, new, you know, players who have put in tons of time and energy and, you know, are sort of, just fully up to speed in the game with the KG veteran who is relying on, you know, tens of thousands of hours of tournament experience, but maybe not a ton of experience in the current standard format. How much magic do you play now? Uh, You know, I probably play magic every day. You know, I try to do a draft or, 
you know, play a <clears throat> play a game. You know, I, I, I drafted with some friends the other night. I played Commander the other day. I, you know, will, you know, get a draft in, and, you know, when I can, you know, sometimes in the morning or sometimes over lunch break or, you know, whatever. Uh, yeah, I play a lot of Magic. You know, I don't play, I don't play, again, I don't do it systemically, so you know what I mean? I'm not someone going out there and trying to get QPs or trying to qualify for the Pro Tour. You know, I just play Magic. It's like, oh, you know, this is, you know, uh, like going out in the yard and shooting hoops. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's just kind of like, yeah, I just do it for the, uh, the sake of doing it. Every event both you and I have been at, you've been drafting on your free time. As competitive as it seems may be, you seem to be enjoying the time with the people you're with more. Oh, that's, I mean, that's, that's the best thing about the Pro Tour. Right? You know, I have, yeah. you know, it's, you know, you kind of take it for granted sometimes. But, uh, my, my wife and I were talking the other day, and we were talking about her, her, her family is, uh, she's half, uh, Czechoslovakian. I don't say Czech Republic because when her parents came here, they were it was Czechoslovakia, right? And uh, she, uh, you know, we 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 do a, a holiday celebration where her aunts we make one of her aunts uh, Czechoslovakian dishes, something called matana holushkis, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, they have these potato dumplings. I, believe me, I get back to magic in a second. No, no, no. Please <laughs> they're these, keep going. These potato, these potato and onion dumplings that you serve with, you, know, you fry them in butter, and you serve them with sauerkraut and onions, and, uh, you know, they're delicious, you know, peasant food. Um, you know, really just, uh, you know, you know, just like a gnocchi, and like an Italian gnocchi, or any other kind of, like, you know, you know, peasant-y pasta dish. So, you know, we're talking about them, and, uh, you know, it's just kind of like, you know, well, what, you know, and I, I looked up holishkis online, and everything I can find about holishkis are noodles, actual, like, like kind of like egg noodles, served with maybe a sauerkraut and onion topping. So I was trying to figure out whether the holishki referred to the, the cooking, the, prepar- the process of preparation, or was it the actual dish that her, her aunt made? And I was like, you know, I don't know. And uh, so I was like, oh, you know, I'll just ask some of my che- my friends from the Czech Republic, you know, the next time I see them. You know, I'll ask, you know, Martin or Lucas or I'll ask, uh, you know, Mate Zedelkai or, you know. Uh, and I was just like, that's kind of crazy. You know, like you, you take it for granted, but it's just like that you, you get to know these people all over the world. You know, and that, you know, I, you know, that I know that if I – found myself in Japan on business that there, you know, I could call up Kenji and say, hey, let's go get a drink and hang out, right? Like, that's just amazing to me that, you know, that there's people, you know, all over the world that you get to know and, you know, really grow close through, close to through a shared experience like magic and a a shared passion. Speaking of Kenji, I did an interview with him that has not been posted yet. It will be soon. It will be soon. He's going to school. Because his goal is to do something for Wizards Wizards of the Coast. Right, yeah. A lot of the professionals you've seen have done something to continue in Magic when they're done playing competitively. You don't normally see that in... You know what, I, I don't even know if that's an accurate portrayal. I think so many people have stopped 
playing competitively to take a hand in continuing magic success. I don't, I don't think it's like, Oh, I'm done playing magic. I'm not, you know, I'm not good at it anymore. I'm going to go get a job at wizards. Right. Like, like, like a lot of these guys, you know, left at the height, like Zach Hill took his job, right. You know, he, he's got his job coming right on the heels of making top eight of, uh, you know, Pro Tour Honolulu, right? Hey, uh, Aaron Forsyth was, you know, at the peak of his powers, you know, going back all the way to Henry Stern. Henry Stern had two top eights and was, you know, uh, a dominant pro player who, you know, was like, well, you know what? I have, I have some really strong ideas about how, how this game should work, and I'm going to put my Magic career on hold, and I'm going to go work for Wizards, you know? And so, I mean, I think a lot of those guys see the um, – See themselves, you know, Randy always talked about it, right? He's like, look, I'm just here making sure Magic is in a good place for when I'm not working at Wizards anymore and I want to play Magic. You know, so, not to, not to hijack your question. No, 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 no. But if you, if you think <laughs> of it this way, they care so much deeply about the game that they feel they can make an imp- a larger impact on the game being involved with the nuts and bolts of the game yep. than actually playing the game. Right. Yeah, and like I said, I think they, and they view it as a, a lot of those, not, not as a sacrifice in the sense like, oh, they're like, but, you know, they're, they're, it's, it's not some easy decision to stop playing. Yeah, these guys, you know, miss it deeply. I've done a few podcasts with Gavin. And when Gavin got done with school and he was doing the, the coverage of Star City Games, you know, he talked about, yeah, I still like to play, but, you know, my goal is to get an internship here. And when you hear him say that to you, you just realize that, he, you know, his career had, hadn't even, like, taken off to where he wanted to, that he was willing to stop it for now and go do that because he felt he had so many great ideas to help the game. I think that just that shows the character and passion of the person, sure. in my opinion. I couldn't be missed without doing some lists with you because too many people, once I started mentioning that you were being interviewed, asked me numerous questions through emails that I had to get to a couple. And okay. they preferred top fives. I didn't want tens. We'd be here till 2 in the morning. Okay. The top five plays in Magic history. Uh, I mean, that's that's so tough. Uh, okay. The t- the, how about not top yeah, well, No, 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 no. I mean, okay. I, you know. I, I, I can, I mean, you know, in, in, man, it's, but it, that's, that's tough to do unprepared. Uh, you know, certainly, certainly, uh, Gabriel Nassif, Patrick Chapin playing at Worlds, uh, where, you know, and, and, you know, not necessarily a skill play, but, you know, where Nassif has to dodge, you know, a, a, uh, you know, any card costing more than two out of Patrick's hand for any number of storms on um, Ignite Memories was was certainly very memorable. Um, you know, my my favorite memory will always be Gabriel Nassif arranging his banner for his cruel ultimatum in Kyoto. Um, you know, uh, the whole sequence of plays with Conley Woods. Um, just figuring his way out of some insane hole against Craig Wesco. Um, the lightning helix of Craig Jones. 
Um, I, I love Kenji Samora's, um, uh, Antoine Ruel, you know, Metal League sequence, uh, Four Spike sequence at, at Pro Tour Hollywood. Uh, you know, Kai Bude, uh, playing to his outs in Pro Tour New Orleans, finding his, you know, at the, you know, finding exactly the cards he needed to, to, to win. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on, right? I mean, there's, there's been a lot of great players who've played a lot of great magic. All right. The top five greatest magic players not named John or Kai. Um, that's, that's, I mean, that's reasonably easy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right? It must be. So, Gabriel Nassif, Paulo Vitor Damodorosa, um, Bob Maher, um, uh, Luis Scott Vargas, I think, uh, did I say Paulo Vitor Damodorosa? Yes, you did. I did, okay. Uh, Dirk Baborowski, very underrated player, um, you gave me five. I give you that. I mean, in no particular order and not necessarily my top five, but, you know, certainly like clustered right near the top. I mean, Gabriel Nassif, Paolo Vitor Damodorosa are, are two players who I think are right there neck and neck with, with, with the best players to have ever played the game. What is it about, uh, Nassif and Paolo that, in your opinion, sets them apart? Just the, their ability to just, continually make top eights uh, across multiple formats year in, year out. Um, you know, I mean, Paulo, you know, at, a, at an unbelievable clip, but, you know, and the, the same with the Siva, it's just, it's just, a, just a, a just continued excellence year in, year out. Do you think that the circuit is missing something now that, since Paulo's locked up, the South American Player of the Year qualified for platinum and went back to Brazil to continue school, which is obviously important. Do you think the circuit's missing something with him being back in Brazil? Oh, no. I mean, it'd be, I mean, you know, he didn't traditionally come to a ton of Grand Prix uh, in the past. No, I, I, I think there's, there's, there are plenty of players for the spotlight to find. It's great when Paulo's there, but uh, if he's not there, then, you know, we'll just talk, look at LSV, we'll look at Josh Utterlayton, you know, we'll look at Brian Kebler, we'll look at John Finkel. Holy crap, John Finkel showed up. <laughs> you know, Raphael Levy, uh, and so on and so forth down the line. There's, there, you know, young players like Reed Duke and Matt Costa and, you know, Richard Bland from England. And, you know, there's, 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 there's plenty of, Plenty of, uh, you'd certainly always like Paulo to be there, but if he's not, there's, there's not a shortage of, uh, stars to, 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 to look at in the, in the magic sky. Now you mentioned a handful of young players that you were interested in talking about. Are there any more of those players that people should be following or know more about? I mean, Jer- Jeremy Neiman is someone who, you know, if he, I, you know, I, I feel like he's gonna school, and you know, the idea, some idea of being a doctor or something crazy like that is gonna, you know, pull him away from the game at some point. But uh, Jeremy's someone who's just terrific. 
um, and, and is, you know, a great person to listen to talk about the game. Uh, <clears throat> you know, Richard Bland is someone great. I, I'm really impressed with the um, young British and Norwegian players. Uh, so that's like Daniel Royd and uh, Svein Bjornerung and, and those guys all seem, you know, really like poised to break out. Um, you know, I, I, I uh, Simon Gertsen was talking the other day where he's worried that there weren't going to be a lot of German players on the pro tour for the 2013-2014 season. I'm really hoping that Averson restored is good to them because I think Simon and Fabian Tila are, are just, you know, really just great uh, additions to the Pro Tour, and uh, you know, I mean, there's there's uh, there's there's not really a shortage of of people that uh, you know, I can get excited about watching play Magic. In your opinion, the five pivotal events in Magic history. Uh, well, you know, uh, Richard Garfield creating Magic. Uh, and but more so is actually deciding, uh, creating magic, and then I think it was Scaff deciding not to alter the card back for the first expansion set, Arabian Nights. Uh, up until, I think, the last minute, they talked about doing a different colored card back for Arabian Nights so you could distinguish the cards. And, you know, at that point, you know, at some point, like 11th hour, they were like, no, Let's keep the card back consistent so that you can play them together. And I think that that was, you know, a really pivotal moment in Magic history that probably not a lot of people pay attention to. I think Pro Tour 1 in New York, you know, creating this, this, this competitive tournament scene that would, you know, allow for players to, uh, you know, you know, monetize their passion for Magic and and uh, really um, create some some stars with people could aspire to uh, emulate in the game is is probably the biggest thing that happened in Magic's history. Um, Magic, you know, the creation of Magic Online is obviously just speaks for itself. You know, the 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 ability to to play Magic anywhere, anytime, and just stay in touch with the game is amazing. Um, Duels of the Planeswalkers is also, I think might even be bigger in some ways than Magic Online. And I think is a huge building block of why Magic is so successful right now. Because you have such a, such a low price point entry into the game where you can not only, uh, you know, sort of get, you know, a, a good, part of the game you can you can feel get a feel for it but you get to do it by yourself in a solitaire fashion which is just has always been this huge hurdle to getting people into magic right if you wanted someone to get into magic you had to sit down with them and you had to teach them how to play and you had to play a few games with them and then you had to like maybe you had to beat them really badly to show them you know what a powerful deck does and that's not really good or you had to let them win you know, so they'd feel good. Well, they knew you let them win, and that's not really good either. You know, either either they feel like, you know, they're an idiot or that you're condescending to them. You know, it's it's very hard to, to teach someone how to play Magic in a way that everyone feels good about. And the ability for people to 
learn how to play magic on their ability to go, oh, you want to learn how to play magic? Go spend ten dollars, download Duels of the Planeswalker, play 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 with it for a couple days, and then I'll give you a deck and we can start playing. Right? It is unbelievable. I've I've actually you know uh the company I work with, there's a ton of people there who draft now at Fifth Planet Games, and there's multiple people there who are like they're like, okay, well, I'm, we're showing up for draft night, you know, and they've never played a game of Magic before, but they went and they downloaded Duels of the Planeswalkers, and, yeah, I mean, they, 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 they got their ass handed to them when they played, but, you know, they, they knew what was going on, you know what I mean? They didn't have to, like, they were able to just sort of, on their own, learn how to play Magic. And I think that that is, you know, just in the modern era, the most significant thing that's happened to Magic. And then... uh and then fifth, the fifth thing is just to, you know, because it's a top five. Uh, I would say that as soon as they, the first time anyone started uh, webcasting Magic events. So whatever the first Wizards event was, and I, I think it might even go back as far as Pro Tour 1, where they were doing, uh, I think, radio streaming of that first Pro Tour. And there were certainly webcasts of early Pro Tours, top eights. Um, I think wh- whoever had the foresight to start doing that, that is... Obviously, just, you know, incredibly pioneering ahead of their time and, and, and really paved the way for all the great magic coverage that we enjoy today. When you get to do as many interviews as I do and spend time with the greatest minds of magic, you get to enjoy some of the laughs and some of the memories and the reasons why you do this. BDM, very gracious with this time. And I can't thank him enough for this interview. These are the interviews that I really enjoy because it takes me back in magic. And as much as I do this for you, I kind of enjoy hearing the backstories too because those are what make me love the game so much. And I hope that passion shows in the show I give to you every time it comes out. You listen to the show... If you have any questions, please send emails to themenofmagic at gmail.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter under themenofmagic or the Beanie, which is my personal account, but I talk an awful lot of magic there too. And again, thank you for listening. <laughs>